All right, we'll get going. <laughs> I love that some of you who are still talking to people, you're like, peep back, like, are we doing this thing or what's going on? And we're doing this thing. But that was part of the thing. We intentionally want to connect with each other. Uh, side note, my wife and I met during that time. Not actually like right then, but like years ago, six years ago, my wife and I met during the meet and greet. So good things actually happen during that. Some of you pretend like you're praying during that. It's all good. Everything's welcome. We love it. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Got uh, another Sunday morning, and uh, they come weekly, <laughs> and we're grateful for them, God. That, that your people get to gather, not assuming that everyone here knows you, God, um, but your people get to gather together and just be reminded of our deep need for Jesus and, God, how you have met our deepest need in providing Jesus. God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit's power, uh, just show us how, how, how spiritually famished and starving and hungry we are apart from your word. God, and that you would also show us, God, that, that a steady diet of your word is such a deep need for us, God. And, and, and this morning, God, as you kind of, in a, in a spiritual sense, um, increase our awareness to the reality that that. that our, our, quote, spiritual stomachs might be grumbling. God, that we need your word. So God, as we come to your word, make us people like your word um, says, people who are humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at it. God, that, that, that you are a God that has no rivals, that this book, your holy Bible, is a book that has no rivals. Will we treat it as such? God, help us just feast on a good meal that you've prepared for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me tell you um, a little bit of a story. Rewind back to summer of 2019. My wife and I were uh, new-ish parents with a new-ish kid trying to figure it out. Can anyone relate to that? Newish parents, newish kids, trying to figure it out, summer of 2019 or so. And I remember vivid memories that my wife and I would have. We're playing um, on the floor, on the carpet with toys with our, our, our oldest son, now our oldest son, then our only son, Emmett. Um, and we're playing with him and, and, and giggling and laughing, but we are dead tired. Dead, tired, exhausted, trying to make it through. Once in a while, Rachel and I, my wife and I, our eyes would lock <laughs> And then we would together look at the clock <laughs> and be like, oh my goodness, we still got another two, two and a half, three hours before bedtime. <laughs> and you just keep going, right? You go through the routine, you, you, you try to get some food inside of them, you, you, you try to put them to bed somewhat clean, um, <laughs> you sing them some songs, 
You pray for them, maybe you read some Bible, and we're doing all this stuff, right? Inching toward bedtime, and um, we have Emmett in our arms and patting him on his back and uh, turn the lights down low, um, trying to get him to fall asleep, and then and maybe he's asleep, maybe not. You're not quite sure. You put him down in his crib as gently as possible as if he's weightless, right? And then, and then we, we slowly turn <laughs> and walk toward the door. I'm getting some nods. You're resonating. Walk toward the door. And if you're a parent, you might know this move where you turn the handle (laughs) as you open the door. You got to do that. But then you keep it turned as you close the door so that the latch doesn't make the noise because then that would spring them into action and you got to do the whole two-hour routine over again. (laughs) So we do that, right? We close the door, walk out, no squawks, no sniffles, no nothing. And Rachel and I, we look at each other in the eye and we both smile and exhale. And we never planned on doing this thing, but we, we started doing this where we just shake hands. <laughs> we still do it to this day. Like, we just, we, we did it. We're good. Praise God. Um, and these are newish parents with a newish kid um, who had pretty much, he was six months old, pretty much done nothing wrong. <laughs> We're going to look at a text today that is going to not be newish parents with a newish kids with a, with, who's pretty much done nothing wrong, but a text um, that reveals really the father heart, at least part of the father heart of God toward people who are historically and habitually bent on turning away from them. People who, if we're real with ourselves, people may be kind of like us who are prone to wander. We're going to look at three things uh, this morning, specifically that God's love is otherworldly. Somebody say otherworldly. That was a tough one. Good one. Good one. Good one. The next two are easy. God's love is otherworldly. God's love is unbreakable. Say unbreakable. And God's love is irresistible. Say irresistible. Otherworldly, unbreakable, irresistible. If you're able and willing, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We'll be in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. That's page, ooh, someone, someone call it out. Someone in the first service did, but in those black pew Bibles in front of you, it's 700 and something. Does anyone have the page number for that? Hosea chapter 11. Nobody. Some of us are like, I didn't even know Hosea was in the Bible. <laughs> Amen. Uh, 757. Not actually, amen. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. This is God's holy word from him for us. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me. 
The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. You can grab a seat. Here's what's happening in verses 1 through 7. We see God's pursuing love, and then we see God's people pulling away. God's pursuing love, and God's people pulling away. Look at the text. Verse 1, do you see? It says, I loved him. I loved him. I called him out of Egypt. It's this language that is filled with with warmth and affection, has a fatherly tone. I loved him. I called him. I'm talking about God's love and pursuit of his people. But then we see this in verse 2. It says, the more they were called, the more they went away. Again, we see this, 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 this interesting back and forth. God pursues and his people pull back. The more they were called, the more they went away. This back and forth, God generously lavishing his people with his love. And then them being like, "Mm, I don't know. George Schwab, I'll quote him a number of times today, says this. He says, "But but amid this expression of parental affection, recalling Ephraim's infancy and toddler days, a seemingly out of place verse is found, verse two, If this verse were before or after this section, it would not convey the same degree of dissonance and tension. But right in the middle of God's looking, as it were, to the photo album of Ephraim's preschooler days, his eyes shining with sentiment is an ugly and alien verse that mars the loving memories. Israel's response to Yahweh, it's saying God's people's response to God, even back then, was to spurn him and favor Baals and idols. In other words, God loves his people who love to pull back. God loves his people who love to pull back. Let's flip the script a little bit. Think about someone who's hard to love. (laughs) When would you stop loving 
someone resisting, someone stiff-arming you, someone who maybe just isn't really interested. Most of us maybe would stop at verse 2, or maybe some of us would, would, would muster up some oomph and tiptoe into verses 3 and 4. Let's remember uh, the, 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 the principle and the pattern that we see happening here is that God pursues, and his people do what? They pull back. God pursues, and his people pull back. <clears throat> Look at the language in verses one through four. I want to highlight some of, some, of, some of what God is doing toward his people. He loves them, calls them. He says, and this is some of the, 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 the fatherly kind of illustration, teaches them to walk, <laughs> took them up by their arms, healed them, led them with cords of kindness. That word kindness can actually be, in, be translated humanness. He knows our frame. He made us. He led them. He led his people knowing who we are at our core. Bands of love. He bent down and he fed them. If, sometimes I'll, I'll observe um, and, and I'll see people on Sunday, uh, an adult go up to a kid. And you know when an adult goes up to a young child and goes like this and gets down on their knees and looks them in the eye, they know what they're doing. And God is saying, in a sense, it says he bent down and he fed them. Do you see the warmth and the affection and the care and the loving pursuit of God toward his people just in these verses? And what we got to remember here, or, or um, be alerted to the reality, is that verses 1 through 7 is a 1,000 years, roughly. Verses 1 through 7 is a 1,000 years. And this pattern or this principle of God pursuing and his people pulling back, this is happening for a 1,000 years. I was doing some sermon prep at Makeworth Market, a cool uh, coffee spot downtown uh, this past week. And I'm looking out the window and I see uh, these lovely ladies on the other side of the street um, walking with probably 10 or so kids. Um, my assumption is they were from the YMCA or something because it's right there. And they were all, whole, they were probably, I don't know, five, six-ish, seven-ish years old. They were all holding this rope. You've seen this before? <laughs> um, and these lovely ladies lead, like one in the front, front of the rope, one has the, the back end of the rope, and these 10 or so five to seven-year-olds are in there. They're all holding the rope, right? And they're walking through downtown Bellingham. And my assumption is that, that they're holding this rope, or the, these ladies said, man, hold this rope because it's going to help you be safe. We don't want you wandering into the street, but we also want you to be able to get outside. It's a beautiful day. Get outside and explore and enjoy the sunshine. God loved his people, we see, with cords of kindness. This willingness to both protect and to be real with and to come alongside and encourage. We see these, this language in verses 1 through 4. He loved them, called them, taught them to walk, um, led them with cords of kindness, bands of love, bent down and fed them. All this loving pursuit of God. And then we see kind of this weird transition in verses 5 through 7. Look with me at verses 5 through 7, if you would. 
right after it says the man God bent down and fed his people. And then verse five, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. What that's saying historically is that God's people were enslaved by Egypt, but God said, okay, you've been rebellious, wayward. You're not gonna go back into slavery in Egypt, but but guess what? Assyria is gonna be your king. You're gonna have a different king. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because, why? They have refused to return to me. Again, God's pursuit, they're pulling back. They've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. Look at verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. My people are bent on turning away from me. We sung the song, Come Thou Fount, this morning. Uh, And there's this refrain in that song that says, prone to wander. (laughs) Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And the reason we we, we sang that song was to set the stage, hopefully in our hearts, to, to... to, to look into Hosea chapter 11 at God's people who have over, for over a thousand years, just in verses one through seven, have been prone to wander. This was their thing. Prone to wander. And this song is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I, I want to just pause for a moment and let, let, let that refrain land on you. Because if you're anything like me, you, you might feel And if you follow Jesus for more than five minutes, you might feel that you're prone to wander, right? That I am prone to wander, to be distracted, to be straight up rebellious, to be apathetic, to be sinful, silly, straight up rebellious, whatever it might be, prone to wander. Lord, I feel, let's just acknowledge some of that reality. That's good for me. And also in that song, there's the refrain, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the what? The, the God I love. So this this interest, man, I'm prone to wander, prone to leave uh, who? The God I love. Let's be real. Man, I'm prone to leave him, but I love him. <laughs> we see that in this text. God's people prone to leave their God who has pursued them and loved them and still steadfastly does love them. <clears throat> if you're a parent and you think about um, feeding a young child another meal and maybe you don't receive much gratitude for that. <laughs> or you have a teenager and they don't return your text back. Or you have an adult son or daughter and, um, and they've just wandered relationally from you and intentionally so. I think, I think most of us are the type of, of if you're in here and you're a parent who, who, who like, I'm still going to pursue. I'm still going to do my best to love. I'm still going to go after. I'm still going to chase down in good ways. Everything in verses one through six are, is, is crescendoing toward verse seven, where we see this pattern of God pursues and we pull back. And verse seven says, God, God says, my people are bent on turning away from me. That's a good summary verse. My people are bent on turning away from me and and we find ourselves in this pattern. (laughs) 
I find myself in this pattern. God pursues me and I pull away. <clears throat> As I was reading this uh, and studying for this, this, this sermon earlier this week, it, w- it was very interesting and it felt... Um, I wasn't like trying to be heretical by any means, and I, I was, but I was, I was looking at verses one through six, and I see God pursuing, but I also see that, that, that God is frustrated with his people, that his people have rebelled against him. And we see this, man, one through four, God, God is lovingly pursuing them in verses five through seven, but, but there's discipline. And I was just thinking, man, is God waffling? Like if, if you ever run into me and I haven't had my coffee recently, like, you, you know, <laughs> what are you going to get? Is God fickle? Is he overly emotional? I was just thinking these things. <clears throat> George Schwab says this, he is both a God who has strong emotions and a God who is not ruled by them. You know what's comforting to me about verse 7? A couple things. Um, the first two words in verse 7 says this. It says, my people. You see it? Verse 7. After a thousand years of God pursuing his people pull back, verse 7, God says, those are my people. <laughs> those are my people. Th- think about us in the midst of our wandering waywardness. Maybe that's not you right now in this season of life, or sometimes it's a season of life, sometimes it's just a moment, sometimes it's a split second, whatever it might be. But think about this, in the midst of your wandering, if you are in Christ, God looks at you and says, that's, that's my daughter. That's, that's my boy. In the midst of a thousand years, on the heels of a thousand years of God's people, pulling back, God says, those are my people. That's good news for someone like me and people like us who are prone to wander. Those are my people. <laughs> That's why at least one reason we like to say things in this church like one degree of change is still change and worth celebrating. Things like everyone is a work in progress. Because when we're real with ourselves, we, man, we, we, we know That's true. We know that's real. When we look on the, on the heels of a thousand years of God's pursuing his people and his people pulling back, we know one thing. We know that God is for sure patient. For sure. And then we can get into and live into this reality that, oh, maybe one degree of change is still change and worth celebrating. That's not just a cute, cute thing we could slap on a mug, but this is a felt thing for God's people for a thousand years where God is patient with them. Meaning that, hey, maybe we can be works in progress too. Another thing that's comforting to me about verse 7 is this, is that there's a verse (laughs) 8. That verse 7 is not the end of the story. My people are bent on turning away from me, man. If justice was served, there's no verse 8. There's no New Testament. Some people say, the Old Testament, God has no grace. (laughs) There is no New Testament if God isn't filled with grace in the old. There's a verse 8. My people are bent against me, turning away from me, verse 7. And then verse 8. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Amen? As I was reading this this last week, um, a verse in the end of Romans chapter 8 kept coming to mind. And Romans chapter 8 is near the end. It's this list of all these things. 
that rightfully should separate us from God. And that at the end of chapter 8, it says, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. All these things should separate us from the love of God, but nothing shall separate us from the love of God. In other words, his love, God's love is otherworldly. We also see in this text that God's love is unbreakable. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. God says this, he says, and we really get a glimpse into God's heart here. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And then we get to this, this verse in the end of verse 8. It says, my heart recoils. This is God. My heart recoils within me. Then listen, my compassion grows warm and tender. When you think about God, do you think about that? (laughs) His warmth and tenderness. Man, I want to lean into that. Do you see it in the text there? Make sure I'm not making up some unicorn stuff. I don't know what I mean by that, but you know what I mean by that. This is God. He says, my compassion grows warm and tender. What if we leaned into that? Man, I want that for me, for us. I remember um, prepping this week and and just getting to the spot in verses 8 through 9, and we get to the spot where it says in verses 9, God says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not do it. I will not destroy Ephraim. It says, for I am God and not a man. <laughs> I remember I read that and there's just my body, I don't know if it did, but it felt like it shook a little bit. For I am God and not a man. Thanks be to God for that because if a man had a thousand years of people rebelling against him, The end of the story looks different. For I am God and not a man. I will not execute my burning anger. I am a holy one in your midst and I will not come in wrath. Hmm. Friday mornings, 5.30 or so, I I head over to my buddy's house uh, to carpool with him to early morning Friday basketball. Um, and we do this, we've done this for years, and, um, and we were doing this, uh, I don't know, it was a month ago or so, and we had just finished playing basketball, and we're driving home, carpooling together, and just talking shop, life, what's new, what's the latest, that sort of thing, and uh, he had recently, he works for Amazon, works remotely, um, uh, but he had gotten a new job, and he, he started to manage people, and, uh, and he's, he's telling me what he's been doing lately, and I remember him saying, um, yeah, I'm, I'm like hiring people, which means he's then interviewing people. So I'm like, man, how's that going, that sort of thing? And he, he shares a bit of Amazon's hiring practices um, with regard to, okay, you got this interview, you got a bunch of candidates, how do you know? And Amazon, if you're, has anyone heard of Amazon? Okay, good. Um, just talked about their hiring practices and and a giant company (laughs) 
giant's a small word. I think, I'm not going to guess how many people. Uh, giant company like Amazon, um, they know the business savvy refrain that uh, the best predictor of future performance is past performance. Amazon knows that. So, so, so they're not oblivious, and in the interviews, they're not like, hey, tell me about if this were to happen, what would you do? They're like, no, we're not messing with that. So they ask questions like, hey, when this has happened, what did you do? <laughs> you get that? They're, they're not like, hey, what if? They're like, what did you do when? This is called behavioral-based interviewing. It's a technique. And uh, here's a couple questions that Amazon asked. This is literally from their question bank, which apparently is public. Hopefully I don't get fired or put in jail or whatever. Probably shouldn't have said that. Here we go. Keep going. One question. Tell me about a time when you were faced with a problem that had a number of possible solutions. What was the problem and how did you determine the course of action and what was the outcome of that choice and why should we hire you? I added that last point. Why should we hire you? Describe a time you took the lead on a project. What was the outcome? How have you leveraged data to develop a strategy? Again, all this stuff is called behavioral-based interviewing. And in the business world, that's savvy. Think about, man, if, if God treated us that way, we'd be toast. Here's why I say that. God knows what I've done. <laughs> and God knows what you've done. And God knows the good things that we should have done and we failed to do. And God knows what you will do in the future. And still his banner over you. <laughs> only in Christ, only because of Christ, his banner over you is this unbreakable love. Where God says things in this text, where it's like, man, how can I give you up? Talking about his people, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? I will not execute my burning anger against you. One thing I... I <laughs> Sounds weird to say, it, but one thing, I, one thing I like about God is that he respects us enough not to romanticize our past, not to look at our past with rose-colored glasses, but also not to look at our future being like, man, show, what, what potential do you have? <laughs> and if you got a lot of potential, then maybe I'll, I'll love you. But if not, then... Mm. God is not fickle like that. He's not an angry tyrant. He's not waiting for us to screw up so he can pounce. He's a father, a loving father. We see that in this text. In verses one through four, man, I bent down and I fed them. Cause Israel his child whom he loved, my son whom I called out of Egypt. We see in verse 8, he says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. George Schwab says this. He says, Yahweh is inwardly conflicted. Israel has offended him to the point that he desires to reject them forever. He wants to punish. He wants to get their attention by whatever harsh means are necessary. But in the end, he just cannot bring himself to do it. 
Do you see that? In verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? <clears throat> Verses 8, and th- 8 through 9, what we see is a, is, a, is, a, is a pointing to Christ. Where we see that God didn't give his people up, he gave Christ up. He didn't hand his people over. He handed Christ over. He didn't destroy his people. He destroyed Christ on behalf of anyone who would trust him. He didn't execute his burning anger on his people. He executed it on Christ. You know, one reason why we say it's okay to not be okay in our church is because we have someone who wasn't just okay, but perfect, who died in the place of people who are not okay. And then through trust in this perfect one, his righteousness is attributed, credited to us through faith alone in him. And we get a rest in that and be transformed by that. I love that in verse eight, we see that that God's compassion overflows with warmth and tenderness. And easily I can go to this this place in my head where there's, man, there's this, that's that's kind of this vague, out there, ethereal feeling, kind of nebulous, vague, whatever. But I love that these feelings of warmth and tenderness overflow into a blood and flesh reality. The incarnation of Jesus the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, all these things real. It doesn't stay as some feeling, although that's important. But it overflows into God's great declaration of his love for us. So that that refrain in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God is only true if we finish that verse. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It says, in Christ Jesus. That's it. Just thinking about this. How does God's unbreakable love break into the nooks and crannies of our lives? Let's pause for a moment. Think about the last couple years. Friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors, church members, whoever it might be. Relationships that were once going swimmingly, now filled with weirdness, friction, question marks. You cannot not relate to that. Now think about this unbreakable love of God, that as we refresh ourselves on it and and marinate in it and ruminate on it and remember and reminisce on this unbreakable love of God that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How then does that break into the hard to love situations, the hard to love people in our own lives? I want to do this for a moment. Um, Think about application in this sense. Think about if you've been inconsistent in your Bible time. (laughs) Just inconsistent connecting with the Lord through his word. What's true for you if you're in Christ is that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. See if you can help me out with these. We're gonna do a couple of these. See if you can finish this statement. You haven't been to church in who knows how long. Nothing can separate me 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Finish it with me. I yelled at my kids again. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Let's keep going. You cut corners in your job. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Good. Your white lies are becoming habitual. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. My thoughts toward coworkers are not of God. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I know it's monotonous, and boy, I know I need it. <laughs> this, is, this is not a truth that we grab a cap and gown and scamper off from. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Hosea 11 is saying. For a thousand years, I've pursued my people and they've pulled back. And then at the end, it's like, but, 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 but I love them. And my, my, my compassion grows warm and tender. And I'm going to send Christ for them so that through faith in Christ, nothing can separate my people from me. And boy, that's good news for people like us who say, I did it again. <laughs> God loves his people who love to pull back. Loves his people who love to pull back. One of the things that, that we can do with this is then, sometimes I get caught in the hamster wheel sometimes of, of, of subconsciously relating to God's love like I'm picking daisies. I don't pick daisies much, but you might know this refrain, like he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Or like you're in the middle of the gladiator ring. Does he love me? <laughs> you catching that? Does he love me? Because of Christ, he's, is this crimson declaration that I love my people. And anyone who would trust in him. My wife and I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. We like to read it to our boys, uh, usually before bed. And um, Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote it. And uh, th th there's this definition that she has of, of God's love, and I want to read it for us. She says this, talking about God's people. She said, God rescued them no matter what, time after time, over and over again because of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I was talking to Joe Dell before the first service who was helping lead us in musical worship this morning and uh, uh, she was telling me about, uh, we were talking about the, um, just kind of the, the flow of this morning and the text and the songs and how can we help, help make that um, cohesive and she was telling me about a time when uh, her and her uh, seven or so year old son Spencer, they're reading Bible, uh, through the Bible and uh, sharing stories through kind of Old Testament stuff and, and Jodell told me that like whenever Spencer would get to the like spots in the Old Testament where God's people just screwed up again, he said, oh, not not again. <laughs> and Jodell and I chuckled and then we just had this moment where it's like, man, isn't that us sometime? Oh, not again. 
And Miss Sally Lloyd-Jones' definition of God's love, this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, that's, that's pithy for kids too, and we need it for ourselves. Because of Jesus, God's love is unbreakable. It's also irresistible. My cousin's house growing up was a fun place to play at. We live down in the Seattle area, and they live kind of up here, and we come up here pretty frequently. And uh, they had a sweet uh, tree fort that we'd go up there as cousins and, and just play, hang out, do make-believe, that sort of thing. And then they also had a trampoline. It was like the best thing ever if you're a kid, as long as you don't snap your leg. So they had a trampoline. Nobody snapped their leg. And we'd also play hide-and-seek quite a bit and just go in and out of kind of big rhododendrons and, and, and kind of these grassy plants. And then there was this special spot kind of underneath the deck that there were multiple hiding spots underneath the deck. And I remember I had my spot under there, and nobody really knew, at least for a, a couple times that we were playing. And then, but they also had a dinner bell, <laughs> and they had good food. <laughs> I remember the dinner bell rang, and, and I, I got this moment where it's like, man, I got a good hiding spot. We're in the middle of this game. What are we going to do? But, but there's good food coming, and the, the d- dinner bell's ringing, so I'm like, Ugh! just go. <laughs> and all the kids flock <laughs> to the dinner table. What we see in verses 10 and 11 is God ringing the proverbial dinner bell for his people who, who in some sense, have been hiding out for a thousand years, wandering wayward. In verses 10 and 11 say this, they shall go after the Lord. Remember, this is on the heels of a thousand years of God pursuing and his people pulling back. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And God says, I will return them to their homes. George Schwab says this. He says, what this means for Israel is clear. On the one hand, they should learn to avoid sin so that they might not experience the discipline of the Father. At the same time, they should learn that when they do rebel, the proper response is to come back to him with humble hearts, knowing that their father will forgive them. And if this is true for Israel, how much truer is it for believers in Jesus today? In Jesus, the Lord has shown not only how seriously he takes sin, his own son had to die for it on our behalf. He also shows how far he will go to receive us back. His own son died so that we might become his sons and daughters. And this calls us to avoid sin with all our hearts. And when we have sin, to return to the Lord with all our hearts, to the one who will take us back into his loving arms. Oh, maybe God is, has been, is now, will in the future ring the proverbial dinner bell in the midst of my or your or our wandering waywardness. With the book of Hosea, we've seen God's heart. For the last couple months, God's heart uh, um, um, illustrated as this loving, sacrificial, long-suffering husband pursuing what Hosea calls a wayward, whorish bride. His people, me, you. And we see the heart of God through the book of Hosea. 
we see his otherworldly, unbreakable, irresistible love. Let's see if we can finish this together. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, I uh, um, help us believe that. <laughs> help us believe that, God. It, it uh, in a in an encouraging way, it feels impossible to preach on your love. Um, Isaiah sixty six says the highest heavens can't contain you. So trying trying to 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 fit your love comprehensively in a sermon is impossible. God, and I praise you for that. Um, but God, by the power of your spirit, would you give us a, a, a bit more of an unveiling of your love, of your heart that, that we see from Hosea 11 grows warm and tender toward a people who have rebelled habitually. God, and we find ourselves in that from time to time or maybe even more. God, will we trust you? Trust your love, God, that it is, in fact, unbreakable. God, we need that. And God, you, you know just where we're at and just what we need. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I ask that you would apply your word into the nooks and crannies of our hearts so that we might see you, be impressed by you, be reminded of your grace that is blood-bought. Transform us, Lord. Help us return once again to you. We thank you for your warmth and your tenderness, your compassion toward your people. Would you draw us deeper still into your love toward yourself? For your glory, God, and for our deep, deep joy. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion like we do every week, really is the pinnacle of our time together as it's a, a retelling and a reminder of, of God's love. Specifically that he sent Jesus to live the life we haven't lived, to die the death we deserve, and to raise triumphantly from the grave. So the band will play instrumental for a little bit, you're, a little bit of time. You're not rushed to go receive communion. There are four stations on the sides, uh, sides of the room here. You can go receive communion whenever you feel um, like you want to. The only barrier to receiving communion in our church is if you don't believe in Jesus. But if you do believe in Jesus, we'd invite you and encourage you to go receive communion, retell yourself. And maybe as you hold these elements, it's a, it's a little plastic cup um, with, uh, with juice representing Jesus' blood spilled on the cross and a little wafer representing Jesus' body broken on the cross. As you take these elements in your hand, maybe say to yourself something like this in your head, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Thank you, God. So we'll play some instrumentals, sing a few songs together. Feel free to go to the table, receive communion as you feel that.